The sermon this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 58. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, your, that, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In November of 2008, one of the great masterpieces of the Italian Renaissance was restored to its original splendor. It was a painting that was created, painted by Raphael in 1505. But 40 years after it was created, an earthquake hit the house in which it was being stored and it shattered it into 17 pieces. It destroyed the wood, smashed it. So another artist took it and took long nails and tried to patch it back together. And after he did that, he, he painted over it and he put layers of veneer on it, but over the years they had to keep putting veneer on it because the cracks kept developing and showing through. This contemporary restoration of it took 50 people over 10 years. And they slowly began to remove all of the veneer, all of the layers of paint, all of the grime that had set over it for all those years. And finally, after they had gotten done, it was restored to its original splendor. The, I mean, the original colors, everything was popping out. It was beautiful, it was gorgeous. Every life 
has been shattered by an earthquake. And that earthquake is called sin. The earthquake actually landed many, many years ago when our first parents in the very beginning turned from God. And when they did, the results were devastating. And every generation since then has felt the shockwaves of this devastation. And the result has been lives that have been marred by sin. Lives that are not what they were intended to be. And every person here, every person, no one's immune to it, has been affected by sin. And your life has been marred to some degree by it. When we realize that our lives are damaged by sin, the natural response is to begin to add layers of paint, so to speak. A new car, a new house, a new job, a new relationship, more money, whatever it may be, to try to patch over the damage. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you could say that the patches and the veneer and all the stuff we try to add to cover up the cracks doesn't work because eventually the cracks start to show through. And we add more paint, more veneer, and something else that will bring us happiness and solve the problem, and nothing works. You can't restore your own life. But God can. The question is how. How does God restore a broken life? He starts with a vision. He starts with this beautiful vision of restoration. Beautiful vision of restoration. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is addressing a group of people who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And they don't believe Jesus rose from the dead because they don't believe that a person can be raised from the dead. They don't have it in their minds, they don't have it in their categories. In their minds, it's impossible, it's supernatural, it's a miracle, bodies can't come out of the grave. Maybe you are there, maybe you can relate to this. The thought of Jesus actually bodily coming out of the grave is hard for you to grasp. The thought of anyone one day being raised from the dead just seems impossible, so you've written it off. It's just not possible in your worldview for something like that to happen. The problem with that is you're putting a lot of faith in what you can see and understand. Philosopher Alvin Plantica tells an illustration that gets at this. He says, if you look in a tent for a St. Bernard, which is a very large dog, and you don't see any St. Bernards in the tent, then it's reasonable to assume there are no St. Bernards in the tent. He says, but if you look in the tent for noceums, which are that tiny, almost microscopic sand gnat that have an incredibly painful bite. If you look in your tent for noceums and you don't see any, it's not reasonable for you to assume there's no noceums in the tent. Paul explains the possibility, the plausibility of the resurrection in two ways. First, 
He uses history to explain it. In verses five to six of 1 Corinthians 15, after Jesus was raised from the dead, says he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, speaking of the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why is this significant? Why is Paul telling us this? Because it's highly unlikely that 500 people at one time all agree on a conspiracy theory of something that's not true. It wasn't just the 12 disciples that witnessed Jesus' resurrection. If it was, you could argue, well, they were with him for three years, they all colluded and came up with this story, but not 500 people all at once, and a bunch of them were still alive when Paul spoke this, wrote this. And so if it was false, if it was not true, you'd have a lot of people that would say that. Right? So history itself, the witnesses to the resurrection, give credibility that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He bodily came out of the grave. But then Paul goes to what is, maybe for some of you, probably all of you at some point, an everyday experience, or an experience that you encounter from season to season. He explains this in verses 36 to 37. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He's talking about sowing or planting. When you plant a seed in the ground, if you have ever planted a seed in the ground, if you've ever planted seeds for a garden, when you put that seed in the ground, if there's fertile soil and there's sufficient moisture and warm temperature, then that seed germinates, which means that the seed itself disintegrates, dies, and gives birth to a developing plant. You put the seed in the ground, but you are unable to make that seed germinate. Now, if you've ever planted a garden, if you've ever planted a seed, you take it for granted that when you put it in the ground with the right conditions, that it's gonna, it's gonna sprout. But how do you explain that? That's a miracle. It's, like, it's, it's God's creation, miraculous creation of the germination process. And so when you put that seed in the ground, it disintegrates and gives life to something. And if you've ever planted a garden, you have a vision for it, don't you? You put some seeds here, there, there, there. You have a vision for how this garden is going to sprout. Paul says it's the same way with the human body. It's the same way with the human body. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Then he repeats that phrase, it is sown three times. When a body is sown into the ground, when a dead body is put into the ground, that's what Paul's speaking of here. If you've ever been to a graveside funeral service, it's a sobering experience because you're staring at the casket. You're staring at this casket that is above a hole in the ground. 
And most of the time, you don't see that casket lowered in the ground, but if you were to stick around after the service and you were to watch the funeral workers drop that casket into the hole in the ground and then begin to throw dirt over it, that's another layer of a sobering experience because in that moment, especially if it's a loved one or a friend, you ask the question, is this it? Is this it? Does this body sit in this hole with dirt over it forever? Does life cease to exist? Will I ever see my friend or my loved one again? Those are the questions, the sobering reality when a body is dropped in the ground. Paul gives a glorious vision here of resurrection and a glorious vision of restoration of what happens when a body is sown in the ground. Verse 42, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Our bodies are perishing and decaying. The aging process reveals that. I'm not the hunk of a man I was in my mid-20s. You get gray hair, you get wrinkles. The body decays. It's perishing. This is what God said in Genesis 3.19 to our first parents after the earthquake of sin hit the world, hit their lives. He said, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that is true. When a body goes in the grave, it decomposes and it disintegrates. Paul says in Philippians 3.21 that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. When you attend a funeral service, you pay due respect to the dead. But the fact remains that death robs a person of all dignity. But the promise is, when that body's raised, dignity is restored a hundredfold with a glorified body. Verse 43, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. When death separates the soul from a body, the remains that are in the ground are powerless. They're weak. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What does this mean? Well, when Jesus walked on this earth, when Jesus walked on this earth, he was confined by space and time. Yes, he performed miracles, but his body, his human physical body was subject to weakness. He needed food, he needed drink, he needed sleep. He experienced awful physical and verbal abuse. He succumbed to death. He was put in a grave. But when Jesus rose, he had a different body. It wasn't constrained by space and time. That's why the locked doors of the room where the disciples were 
didn't prevent him from coming into the room. Before he, was risen, before he rose from the dead, he needed an open door to walk in a room. After he rose from the dead in his glorified body, he didn't need a door. He didn't need an open door. So what's this mean? That you will be raised with a spiritual body. Verse 45, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Spiritual body doesn't mean immaterial. It means a body that is completely governed by the Spirit of Christ. If you're in Christ, if you have trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit does dwell in you. But because of sin, you can quench the Spirit's fire. In the glorified body, the spiritual body that's raised, you will be completely governed by the Spirit of Christ. And because you'll have a glorified body like his, it raises that spiritual body to a supernatural level. I had a great conversation with my kids this past week on the way to school. It was amazing. We were talking about the resurrection. We were talking about the implications. And my daughter started to ask some really good questions. She said, Daddy, so when I'm in my glorified body, in the new heavens and new earth, if I trip and fall and skin my knee, will it bleed? And she said, if, if I bang my head against the wall, will it hurt? I said, well, you're not gonna bang your head against the wall because you're not gonna ever get frustrated or angry. She said, what if I'm just excited? Will it hurt if I bang my head against the wall? Then my son chimes in. He says, there are gonna be hospitals? I said, no, no, because there's no more disease, no more cancer, no more accidents. He goes, so then what about police officers? I said, no. My daughter chimes in, she goes, man, a lot of people are gonna lose their jobs. <laughs> the conversation continued. We finally got to school. They had to go to school. But there were a lot of questions they asked that I had to say, I don't know. Like one of them, will I be able to fly? I, I don't know. But here's where I landed the plane on the vision of restoration. What is, is not what will be. What is, is not what will be. The cancer or the disease that is crushing your body today will not touch your glorified body. The broken marriage that is bringing so much pain and devastation to your life and family today will be a restored, perfect, beautiful marriage to Christ in the resurrection. The mental illness. The mental illness that is torturing you or your family, or your children will not torture your body or anybody that belongs to Christ in the resurrection. That's the vision of restoration that God gives you. And that's where restoration begins, is with this vision 
But the question is, how does this vision become yours? It's not automatic. It doesn't belong to everyone. How does this vision become yours? What is the way to restoration? Paul makes it clear how you don't get it. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. An inheritance is something you receive. It's a gift. You don't go get it. You don't earn it. You don't live a fairly good life to get an inheritance. It's a gift. Paul does make it clear that you do get something from the way you live your life. In other words, there is something that you do earn by the way that you live your life. What is it? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Death is what you get, is what you earn because of your sin, by the way that you live. Sin is the cause of death. When our first parents turned away from God in the beginning, death came upon them, both physical death and spiritual death. Physical death was not a part of the original creation. It doesn't belong in this world. It's, it's foreign. It's an intrusion into this world. It doesn't belong. And that explains why when someone dies, you grieve it so much. You say, but wait a minute. That's a friend and a loved one. That's why I grieve. Yes, you do. But there's a part of your grief that is just simply grieving that death doesn't belong in this world. If you go to a restaurant and you order food and it comes out with a piece of hair in it, what do you do? Well, you send it back unless you have a real personality of approval and then you just deal with it, right? Don't point, don't point at each other. Or let me just take it to another level. You order food and it comes out and has a dead bug in it. Exactly. There's a visceral reaction. You're like, this doesn't belong. This does not belong in this food. Death doesn't belong in this world. It demands a visceral reaction. It does not belong. Sin caused physical death, the aging process. But sin also causes spiritual death, separation from God. The question is, how do you become aware of sin? How do you become aware of sin? The power of sin is the law. You become aware of sin through the law, God's law, his commandments, either his commandments written in his word or his commandments written on your heart. That's what we would call conscience. That's why everyone has some degree of understanding that there's a right and a wrong. Right? That's God's word 
expressed in his, his word, but also expressed in your heart by nature of being created in his image. You have this concept of right and wrong. And so we become aware of sin through God's law, through his commandments. God's law convicts and condemns the sinner to death. I love how John Calvin, he was a pastor in the 1500s, how he expresses this. Death has no other weapon except sin with which to wound us, since death comes from the wrath of God. The judgment of God upon sin results in death. But God is angry only with our sins. Do away with sin then, and death will not be able to harm us anymore. It is the law of God that gives that sting its deadly power. So how is sin done away with? Verse 57. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ perfectly obeyed God's law. Christ paid the penalty for our disobedience of God's law by dying on the cross. He's the one that takes away sin. And, and when Christ came out of the grave, what we read in verses 54 and 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When Christ came out of the grave, he had swallowed death and he had swallowed the sting of death. In ancient times, the office of royal cupbearer was a position of honor. The cupbearer's job, at least one of the cupbearer's duties, was to drink the wine before the king would drink it. Because in that day, one of the ways that people would try to assassinate a king would be to poison the wine. So the cupbearer would drink it first so that if it was poisoned, the cupbearer would be poisoned and die and not the king. The cupbearer swallowed poison to protect the king. Now, here's what never happened, ever. The king never tasted the wine first to protect the cupbearer. That never happened. And yet that's exactly what King Jesus has done for you. King Jesus swallowed the poison, swallowed death, swallowed the sting of death to protect you. Say, so how does this vision of restoration become yours? This vision of, of a glorified body for eternity. It doesn't become yours because you're a strong person, or you've got a great strategy for life, or you've tapped into your inner self. No, this vision of restoration becomes yours when you say yes to what Jesus has done for you. It becomes yours when you believe that he swallowed death for you. By faith alone does this vision become yours. 
How does God restore a broken life? It starts with this beautiful vision of a glorified body forever. It explains the way of restoration, trusting Jesus who swallowed death for you. But what's the effect of this restoration? And we've talked, all of this is future. The day you die or the day Jesus returns, we're talking about future. What's the effect of the restoration? Right, the future is laid out clear in verse 51. It sums up what's gonna happen when Jesus returns. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, that's signaling Jesus' return, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Restoration complete. If you're dead and in the grave when Jesus returns, your disintegrated body will be transformed into a glorious body, reunited with your soul for eternity. If you're still alive when Jesus returns, in a moment, your body and soul will be transformed into a glorified body and soul for eternity. That's a glorious future. What's it mean for today? What is such a glorious future that's promised you if you've put your trust in Christ? What's it mean for today? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The effect of restoration is steadfast and immovable. What does steadfast mean? It's a word that means unwavering. Unwavering. It means living with purpose, living with resolve, setting your life on a goal, a singular goal that drives you, that you are moving towards. Paul lays this out, what this goal is. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided or resolved resolution to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This is living for something greater than the next paycheck living for something greater than the next house or the next car or the next relationship. This is living for something that will last forever. This is living for Christ and his kingdom. The word immovable, what does that mean? It means unshaken or unshakable. As you've set your heart on this singular goal of Christ and his kingdom, that when the, the hardships and the troubles and the chaos and the disappointments come into life, that you're not shaken by it, that you're immovable. It, it reminds me of this picture of a sailor who is trying to sail his boat 
back into the harbor where he can anchor it down, and he's traveling in the middle of the night in a horrific storm. And he's got his eyes set on the lighthouse that's on shore, and his hands are on the wheel, and yet the, the boat is being tossed around, and the wind and the waves are crashing against him as he's holding the wheel, eyes on the lighthouse. That's a picture of what it looks like to be steadfast and immovable. and have confidence that your labor for Christ is never in vain, even when you can't see the fruit of it, or you can't see the results. This vision of restoration, this brought through the resurrection, the effect of it, I think, can be summed up in one word, and that's courage. Courage. Courage is a, it's an interesting word because it's almost a contradiction in terms. Courage means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Writer G.K. Chesterton illustrates the paradox of courage. He says this, a soldier surrounded by enemies. If he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then there will be a suicide and he will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must drink life like water and yet drink death like wine. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings about restoration births courage. Courage to live for something greater than the next house. Courage for something to, to live something greater than the next car or the next paycheck or the next raise or the next job or the next relationship. And you may say, listen, I hear you, but there is too much comfort and happiness wrapped up in those things and what they promise. And I would agree with you that they bring comfort and happiness for a moment. They bring comfort for a moment, but let me take you back to that great masterpiece in the Italian Renaissance that I began with, that painting that had been shattered by the earthquake. And when they patched it back together with nails and put a veneer over it, what did they have to do? They had to keep putting a veneer over it because the cracks kept coming through. If you're living for a job, or you're living for a relationship, or you're living for a paycheck, or you're living for a vacation, or you're living for that next house or that next car, those are veneers, and you can, you can paint it over the cracks in your life, and it may work for a period, but the cracks keep coming through. 
you can't restore your own life. You can't restore your own life. There's not a number of enough layers of veneer that you can put over it to restore it. Only the resurrected Christ can restore your life. And what he does is he takes those layers that you have put on to try to cover up the damage and the brokenness, and he starts to peel those away. He removes the facade that you've put out there. He removes it to reveal the beautiful child of God that you are, that he created. What's keeping you from turning to Christ in faith? It's the only way your life's gonna be restored. It's the only way. And if you have trusted Christ and you've turned to Jesus Christ, are you living your life in such a way that requires courage that only the resurrected Christ can give? Let's pray. Father, we may not readily admit it. We may try to avoid the truth of it. But every one of our lives have been drastically marred and affected by sin and brokenness. The earthquake that hit in Genesis 3, the shockwaves continue today in generational sin and brokenness. And Father, we confess how we have tried to restore ourselves. We've tried to add layers of stuff and things and people to cover up the cracks and to cover up ultimately the pain. And we confess it doesn't work. Resurrected Christ, would you restore our lives? Would you draw those who have never turned to you to yourself where they would find this restoration process, though it can be painful at times, they would find it revealing the beautiful child of God that they are. Father, we thank you that we can, in Christ, shake our fist at death. Doesn't belong in this world, and Jesus, you have swallowed it. You've swallowed the sting of death. The sting is gone. And for those of us that trust in Christ, the day's coming when we will die, but we simply will fall asleep to wake up in your presence. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that vision that this world and this life is not it. There is a future, and it's a glorious future with you, Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.